Tonight on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, we have part one of your week in IndyCar listener Q&A. It's almost become a boilerplate thing to mention at the start of every episode. Man, we got a heck of a bunch of questions. Big thanks to our pal Tim Falkowitz, who puts them together for me each week. Split them into two parts. Does his best to comb through and find the ones that he thinks are best and or y'all will enjoy the most. And then if there's time, I try and go into those that are below the uh, the line. And yeah, as you hear me sometimes mention, it takes about an hour to get through every thousand words worth of questions that you all thankfully send in. In part one alone, if I were to use all of them above and below the line, uh, we're looking at a two and a half hour episode. So we're not going to do that. That's why we split this into two parts, try and make it a little bit more digestible time-wise. So I'm going to get through as many as I can in about an hour, hour 15, and we'll then mention that I'm going to go to the the below-the-line parts because there's some good questions throughout, and we'll see where we end up. But yeah, bottom line, whoo, yeah, y'all sent in about, between the two episodes, about five hours worth of questions, so uh, we can do our best. Thanks as always to you. Seriously, I love doing that. I really, truly have been looking forward to doing this show since the checkered flag waved over round two on Saturday of the Harvest Grand Prix at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Road Course, and y'all have not disappointed. Say big thanks as well to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, Bell Racing Helmets USA. Could talk to you about plenty of things going on behind the scenes. I'm not... Because, yeah, we've got a lot to get into. And if I'm lucky, maybe I'll catch the last little bit of the second Monday night football game. So let's just go. And uh, we're going to do that beginning with, we're going to go with Brian Cohn. says, it's obvious that the key to a great race at the IMS Road Course is a combo of cold ambient temps and cold track temps. Knowing this, do we petition Mr. Penske? to add refrigeration to the track, like a skating rink, so it races well this summer. Two days of great racing. I loved it. Yeah, the uh, the, the cooler temps certainly helped, but hotter temps could also help as well by increasing tire degradation. So I wouldn't put it down just to that, my man, Brian. And thanks, as always, Brian, for the really kind stuff that you share and mention on social media and otherwise. It does not go without noticing so thank you going to move on to race length questions from keith douglas swanson and also robbie bergren keith opens up mp great weekend racing for sure that said i have to question the line of thought that led them to do a 75 lap uh, clear-cut two-stop race on saturday can you help me understand why they did that um yes the Friday 85 lapper, which ended up being a three-stopper for, I think, everybody. I'm struggling to recall if anyone did it too, but there's big old windows to play with. That's what led to the real fun. Uh, yeah, on Friday, that was aired on the USA Network, and they pretty much had all the time they wanted because it was a Friday afternoon on the USA Network, and the only thing they were displacing was reruns. Um Saturday, different case, live on big network, NBC. And keep in mind that with all the calendar shuffling and adjusting and whatnot, 
a lot of things that were set in stone before the year began in terms of what was going to be on where, well, those things have all been shuffled and moved. So for what IndyCar was able to get, IndyCar said, hey, we have a tight timeline and you can do 75 laps. We're not going to be able to accommodate 85. Uh, I'll mention, and I'm glad that I recorded race two. I wasn't expecting them to go green, like (laughs) seemingly the minute uh, that we rolled past, what, half past the hour, seemingly like uh, two minutes after we were going green and halfway through the lap. So I don't remember what it was that I had to do, but I was running a minute or two late. I always like to be there right when things go live in terms of the broadcast coming on, knowing that got a couple minutes at least, if not 10 or 15 until we get down to action, uh, I was a little bit, yeah, a little bit caught off guard on how quickly they went green on Saturday. So uh, just speaks to this unique situation, Keith, where that's what IndyCar had to do in order to accommodate this adjusted uh, broadcast window that was made available for them. Uh, Robbie, you say, Marshall, it seems to me that the lap count for the second harvest race should have been five laps shorter or five laps longer to provide more strategy options. I think what made race one so much fun was that the fueling windows were large, giving people starting in the back more options to find open air and move forward as well as putting people on much different fuel levels and tires. Do you agree or disagree? hundred percent. The little parallels that I mentioned and what I've written about this is the difference. Friday was like pulling onto the highway and having someone going slow in the fast lane, someone fast in the middle lane, uh, the, the far right lane completely wide open, and you're able to kind of zoom in and out and do all kinds of different things because the cars around you are on different plans. And so that, more often than not, is what ends up creating really great and fun racing. Hey, we've got big pit stop windows. That means that people can try a variety of things, and as a result, you end up getting folks on totally different missions coming together on track. And so you've got the driver on the used reds uh, versus the driver on, say, the new uh, primaries. And for whatever reason, those new primaries are just able to carve right through the person struggling on used reds. Fuel levels could be higher or lower, just a variety of things. What you end up getting is a lot of different speeds and goals. Someone could be saving fuel. The other one might be going balls out. And it's just this fun, diverse thing. The flip side, like we had on Saturday, I keep wanting to say Sunday, was a 75-lap race where it was a two-stopper and everyone was going to stop within roughly the same lap or two. There wasn't much variety to be had. And that, as I've written about, this happens. We're on the road a lot every week where some days you pull out, and it's great because there's differing lanes, differing speeds. I'm always trying to move forward, get us there in the shortest amount of time while driving safely, of course, and obeying all traffic laws. Sure. Uh, Then sometimes, which is what Saturday felt like, you get those days where – boy, everyone's kind of doing the same speed. Everyone's kind of nose to tail. Uh, There are no real gaps in the lanes, and you're just frustrated the whole time because it's just this locked march moment after moment after moment. 
that's what it felt like a little bit. Of course, you know, there was some passing that went on in there and that was all great, but comparing Friday to Saturday was night and day. And because we didn't have either more laps or fewer laps to either reduce it being a fuel saving thing or have more laps so you could truly open up the race strategery, it was just kind of everybody matchy matchy on more or less the same pit window realize that some folks were on different tires and that was a fun subplot to watch reds versus primaries versus whatever uh but uh, so i'm with you i almost knowing that longer wasn't an option i almost wish they went shorter and since we didn't have any yellows to not just break up the monotony and give us a restart and see if anything fun there could happen but also to take fuel saving out of the equation at hopefully if it felt the right time i'm not a gimmick guy right i'm not a big fan of drs and formula one or push to pass and all that kind of stuff but i did have the thought at one point and i'm admitting it begrudgingly and a little bit embarrassed to say but part of me that was wondering if a competition yellow uh could not have been used just for this reason hey yeah, this kind of sucks because we've got too many people that aren't maximizing their speed, uh, unlike Friday, and just about everybody's trying to save fuel, just about everybody's kind of doing the same thing. What if we take that out of the equation? What if people are allowed to drive harder without having to worry about making it on fuel, and could that exacerbate some things? You know, this driver's rear tires are burning off well, if fuel's no longer a thing to save, maybe they're putting more energy into the rear tires, accelerating harder, accelerating later, turning in harder, all kinds of things, and burning those up and making the problem worse. And that allows the person behind to get by. Well, there we go. Okay, here's some here's some fun. So the biggest takeaway, I would say, is this, and I hope IndyCar does. They, I'm sure they will. This weekend's race... Both of them combined were just a perfect representation of how, whenever possible, uh, setting race length to something that allows, who knows, whether it's the two-stop, three-stop, whatever, setting it at a length where you open up as many options as possible for folks to try different things, I think we're going to end up realizing or knowing or looking back on this harvest grand prix is a place where if folks didn't know beforehand it's proof positive that race length can really dictate whether it's a good race or a great race last little thing i'll note and i won't mention the person's name but a dear friend uh, who works for a race team and does race strategy we speak at whatever whatever intervals and when a, a race is announced and its length is announced, or maybe these things, whenever this information comes out, this person always <laughs> right away says, well, this is going to suck, or this is going to be great. And it's all because they look at it from this exact perspective, Robbie. How many laps do we have? How many stops are we going to need? Of course, there could be yellows and other things that you know tweak stuff, but you can only go by predicting what it's going to be before the race. And every time they mention, yep, boy, uh, this one, we love going there. I don't know why they 
adjusted the lap count by however many it might be, but it's going to turn this one into a stinker. And inevitably it is because this thing really truly is the key to creating that big disparity on track at the same time where everybody, as I said, being essentially matchy matchy. Uh, our pal Jeremiah Morell, hello to the Morell family of Indiana. Great Zany Car, take our collective advice, create variety in race length uh, with 85 and 75 lap events, respectively. For 2021, what if the series tried two slightly different layouts for the two planned races next year? They could easily remove turns 12, 13, and 14 and use Oval 1 or the warm up lane for one of the races. Says, I'm guessing there would be objections over tire construction, pit lane usage, and others, but is this idea plausible? Plausible in a something to talk about on kind of a sports podcast talk showy type thing? Yeah. Uh, plausible as in Doug Bowles, Roger Penske, Jay Fry, they're all going to get together and change a bunch of stuff around and go in that direction. Uh, in the real world, not the conversational world, that'd be very doubtful. I don't dislike the idea, Jeremiah. You lo- you know me. I love anarchy. I love just radical changes that spice things up and catch people off guard. We tend to get really good racing when that happens. This, I would think, might be a little bit too much. And I also don't know if teams, in particular, since they get asked very often, hey, we're thinking of doing this thing. Uh, can you give us feedback? This would probably get a giant no. Uh, just because the amount of extra variables thrown in, teams don't like variables. Oh, well, what are we going to have to do setup-wise? Does this change things aerodynamically for us? Damping, blah, blah, blah. Like, uh, more work? No, we don't want more work. Uh, we want less work or same work. So, yeah. How's this? Maybe we push for an, this kind of thing through IndyCar iRacing during the offseason. And maybe if some of the drivers say they really love it, maybe that's the mechanism. But just on their own as a series and track, I don't think we're going to get them trying to do such things. But yeah, maybe we know that we need to get uh, the drivers to be the the big voices of yes. I'm uh, going to stay with Jeremiah for a moment. It says, fun observation, I'm not drunk. This is my unpolished turd of a show, so I keep in all the mistakes. I'm not drunk, and I'm actually not sleepy. I got good sleep last night. I think it's because I brewed a fresh pot of espresso roast Starbucks. And it's not a large mug, uh, but I did probably put too much in it, drank too much too quickly, and so I'm probably actually tripping over my words because my mouth's trying to go faster than it should. Jeremiah says, fun observation from Saturday's race. It appears, for the first stint, Felix Rosenquist's entire job was to protect Scott Dixon from the challenges behind. He spent much of the race in a knife fight with James Hinchcliffe. Hashtag shake and bake. Uh, Yeah, I'm with you, Jeremiah. And I swear that I saw this on Friday as well. And yeah, uh, this seemed like something where Felix, young, delightful, and fast Felix would have been standing on the good old podium uh, on Saturday. It felt like it, but uh, ended up being a fifth. But nonetheless, he was still pretty darn quick. So I think the help your championship contending teammate Scott Dixon plan could not last very long there. 
and then definitely on Saturday it did. Yeah, I also know for a fact that Team Penske, while not exactly telling its other drivers to just play second fiddle to Joseph, I do know that Team Penske's drivers were told, if Joseph is in front, you are protecting. So, obviously, Joseph was in front on Friday. Uh, Good old William Jehoshaphat Power IV was running up front from pole on Saturday, and it would have been it would have been a little egregious to uh, ask Willie P to slow down and let his teammate by for the sake of points. Plus, I I can only imagine the volcanic eruption from Will uh, if that were to be demanded of him. Don't know how many of you watched or watched Formula One. Uh, last decade, actually the decade prior in the aughts, when we had our pal Rubens Barrichello as teammate to Michael Schumacher at Scuderia Ferrari, there were numerous instances where good old Rubens leading the race, and because Michael was farther ahead in the championship, and I also think contractually he was obligated to uh, play second fiddle. Hi, Rosie, as our cat Rosie meows. Um, we saw Rubens just slow down and hand over a win to Schumacher. And that, oh, that's tough. When we're talking, Schumacher could be on the podium and is running fourth, and Rubens was in third, and that kind of thing of moving over. Yeah, it sucks, but it doesn't carry the giant implications of being on route to victory and handing a win to someone else. So I don't think that was ever going to be the case here with Penske. If Joseph wasn't in the lead, if Joseph is hot on Will's tail uh, for the lead, uh, sorry, that got a little pervy there, um, maybe there'd be a, who knows, a discussion. Uh, There's a lot of ways to manipulate such things. Not saying Team Penske would, but, you know, there's a a lot of teams in the past that have been in these kinds of situations that have been asked to fumble... Uh, tire change or take an extra second to get the fuel probe in and it all just looks like it really doesn't even register as an issue but all of a sudden coming out of the pits the change has taken place for the lead and there you go and the person who needs the post points the most comes home first again not saying team penske has ever done any of that just recounting some things i've seen uh, on the planet earth and motor racing before luckily we didn't have to have that in uh, what took place. Also, knowing that Felix was not really in for a shot to win, that I recall, Jeremiah, not a surprise that uh, a sophomore IndyCar driver, not a champion like all three of Team Penske's drivers, uh, I think just fell in line with the overall plan rather easily. Last quick thing to mention, knowing that Felix is in a contract year, uh, I would also say that if... Mr. Ganassi, or Mr. Hole, kindly points out that if the number 10 NTT Data Honda would politely fall behind the number 9 uh, PNC Bank Honda, that would certainly be looked on in a favorable manner. What are you going to (laughs) do? No, I'm going to hold whatever, because I'm going to hold on to 6th or 7th and fight my teammate who's leading the championship tooth and nail and potentially put myself out of a ride. Yeah, so 
everything went according to plan there, my man. Uh, but as I noted as well, Felix was notably faster uh, on Friday, and you kind of got to let the pony go in that case. Uh, Brian Burrell, how you doing, Brian? Two questions all about Ryan Hunter Ray. Thoughts on the non-call with he and Santino Ferrucci sitting in the stands at that turn. It sure looked a lot like mid-Ohio with Colton and Santino. What was the difference? Uh, any contract updates for Ryan? Oh, and then says, hashtag me personally, would hate for him not to be a full-timer in IndyCar next year. Well, <laughs> I got to, again, raise my hand in embarrassment until you had just wrote this and mentioned this, I did not immediately flash uh, to, oh, yeah, isn't Santino the one who was offered his seat uh, to buy him out of his seat? Uh, yeah, I did. I honestly fell out of my brain until now. All right. Uh, this is something that I haven't finished in my brain dump thing, but I've written about it a lot. Because Santino, as I've mentioned in this brain dump thing, it's impossible for him to be boring. It's not that I want to write about him or talk about him after seemingly every race, but the kid is always doing stuff, positive or negative, that warrants discussion. As Rosie jumps up on my shoulder and walks right in front of me. Hi, baby girl. Um, This guy... I mean, seriously, he's never boring. He almost never leaves us with an absence of things to talk about. And so, yeah, he was the biggest talking point from a non-happy aggro uh, capacity coming out of mid-Ohio. And he was on the tongues of three different drivers across the Harvest Grand Prix, that being Colton, that being Ryan hunter Ray. And Connor Daly. So, yeah, there's that. Um, what was different between the two incidents? Nothing and the same thing. So, as I discussed on the podcast you're listening to now, and I believe put in print, the giant takeaway from turn one there in the second race, I think it was the second race, uh, at mid Ohio, do not put yourself on the outside of a driver in a tightening radius turn that has grass on the outside, because even if you are faster than the driver, even if you're just doing everything perfectly, you're exposing your belly. You're just rolling over and exposing your belly and hope and hope the person on the inside is not going to take over, see it, and just bare their teeth and take a giant bite. And so the big mistake that Santino made, probably not realizing how much Colton Herta was disliking him at the time for something Santino did to Colton at the Indy 500 during, you know, during the month of, I was about to say May, of August, he exposed his belly. Colton took a nice old bite, and welcomed him onto the grass. So the takeaway was, don't do that again, okay? Learn from this, even when you're in the right and all the everything positive on your end, even if that were the case. Oh, dude, just don't. <laughs> well, 
what we had at <laughs> Indianapolis Motor Speedway Road Course was going around the outside of a tight tightening radius turn and grass on the outside and guess exactly what happened the same exact thing that happened at mid ohio uh so two things i am very surprised santino did not learn from the fact that it just happened to him whatever it was two weeks prior that really surprised me um it was very much in the sponginess vein of renus vk at the opening race of the year at texas of his team owner in this instance trying to tell him all the things not to do and he still went out and did them he learned afterwards which is again great the kid showed like aha took some lumps learned the hard way but learned nonetheless i know that this wasn't team owner uh schooling santino but you would have thought that the takeaway would be enough people would have said yeah, maybe you don't do that again. Uh, you know, not right now, especially when there are a number of drivers in the paddock who just openly look forward to ruining your day. Well, what I thought about the incident here, and I won't, uh, I'll wrap this up quickly because we could spend a lot of time, but what really stood out here is that he was being raced by his reputation. Uh, I don't know. I I'm probably should remember, but I don't know if Ryan Hunter Ray and Santino Ferrucci have had a bunch of dust-ups over the last two years. I'm sure there's one I'm forgetting about. That's just the way my brain works. But what took place there, on top of it being a case of like, oh, man, I thought you just learned not to do this, and expose your belly, but oh, you exposed your belly, was this was him being raced by his reputation, not necessarily him doing anything wrong. I don't think Ferrucci, from what I saw, I haven't gone back and watched it over and over again, but I don't recall seeing or thinking that Ferrucci did anything wrong. Didn't hit him, didn't crowd him, didn't anything. I It looked like he was just legitimately trying to get by even though we know that he shouldn't expose his belly but i didn't look at anything ferrucci did and say he's at fault i didn't i thought he was honestly dumb choice but he didn't do anything bad or wrong to the driver he was trying to pass uh, right there nor frankly was he trying to do anything bad to colton herta it's just dude yeah uh we already know how that ended up but this was, as I interpreted it, Hunter Ray saying, oh, oh, you're that guy. Oh, you're the guy uh, that my teammate tried to do this with my teammate. Well, guess what? Um, your reputation is trash, man, and nobody likes you. And I'm exaggerating. I don't say nobody. I'm sure that Santino has friends, but I'm just talking established names and hierarchy. Uh I can just tell you without naming names when his name is brought up by many drivers who we can say are very successful, have race wins, championships, and so on. He's often not mentioned in a positive light. So just sharing reputationally, he's not someone who 
some of the drivers that are better known would look at in a kind manner. Lo and behold, a guy who isn't looked on in a brotherly way, hey, you're a pal, you're a trusted guy, you're a good dude, whatever, I'm going to give you a little tiny extra bit of room, just as Colton did not at Mid-Ohio. Well, Ryan hunter Ray did not as well. And again, I don't know if there's the actual significant beef, if any real beef, leading up to that. That's what causes me to say, I think, it was a reaction to his reputation of like, nope, not giving you an inch and off into the grass you go. Granted, it ended up biting the two of them hard. Uh, Ryan, in particular, uh, harder than Santino. So, yeah, that maybe wasn't the best thing in the world. Uh, what, Ryan finished 19th, Santino was 15th. So it didn't work out super well there. Um but this is the uh, this is the kind of stuff we're dealing with. I have mentioned uh, to Dale, uh, and I've mentioned to others at that team who expressed frustration at the outcome from Mid Ohio. I haven't spoken to them about uh, the, this Friday Saturday racing and whatnot. But this is part of the deal with Santino, his reputation and image, whether it is earned or totally wrong and false for anyone to think negatively of him. Regardless of whether he deserves it or not, it's a thing. It's here and it is real. And I would say that within the Andretti camp, the guy should seriously think about who he's trying to pass, where he's trying to pass, because the guy's got... No credit whatsoever. And I know of some other drivers as well where he's got zero credit line with them, zero goodwill. And I think I mentioned this after Mid-Ohio. I don't honestly remember. But if he's going to be around in IndyCar for a number of years, it would behoove him to go on a charm offensive. I uh, heard during one of the broadcasts that uh, one of the reporters from NBC spoke with Colton. Colton said, had not had a conversation, did not speak with Santino after Mid-Ohio, and that's telling. Uh, That's telling that there's no desire, at least from his side. He's got a bigger gang of teammates and whatnot and friends than the other guy. Um, Just saying the the inside thing outside i don't believe that santino ferrucci deserves bad things happening to him deserves being uh chucked off the track whenever possible those aren't positive things for the sport but these things aren't happening randomly and for no reason and so if he wants to be in the series for a while and show true value to his sponsors, to his team or teams, and so on, he will have better results for the remainder of his IndyCar career if he were to mend fences and get into that space where if he is on the outside of a Herta, a Hunter Ray, uh, and I'm just going to throw random names, a Power, a Dixon, a this, a that, 
maybe he isn't automatically thrown to the turf. That's only going to help him long-term. I just don't know if that humility is inside him. Again, it's not all his fault, but it's happening. If he's looking big picture, these are the things that are going to help him. And so coming back to your primary question with a lot of the subtext thrown in, do I think that the non-call was was correct? Yeah. The fact that both paid for it, Hunter Ray in particular, if there was only Santino getting thrown off and Ryan continued unencumbered and everything was fine, I think they might have might have considered a, a penalty as a bit of a uh, we saw what happened in mid Ohio. We know that he Santino got a penalty, but this sure looks like a bit of payback. It looks like the the pitchers throwing at him here um, and intentionally trying to hit him. So maybe we need to send a message and penalize Hunter Ray just as a calm everyone down, so the entire field doesn't think doing this is okay. The fact that they both went spinning off, Ryan's race was pretty much screwed from there. That's my my guess, Brian, why there was no penalty applied. Uh, our pa- Good Lord, I'm trying to talk and my voice is revolting. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great hashtag right there. Uh, our pal, John Ranjow, a.k.a. John Wojnar, says, MP, what would you grade the replacements, that being Bordet, Castroneves, and Hinch, their performances this weekend? Do you think Elio and Hinch did well enough to earn a job next year? Said also, as a member of your podcast community, do I have permission to go rock climbing while posing naked for ESPN? The body issue. (laughs) Oh, John, seriously, you've become one of my favorite, favorite listeners in such a short amount of time. Oh, yeah, brutal, just brutal, but. That's the stuff that I love. I'm sorry. I told y'all that I love, I'm a new lover of uh, the Golden Girls today, by the way. So, yeah, my brain is just a mess. All right. Had a a good long call with our beloved French fry this morning, and he readily admitted this might have been one of the worst racing weekends ever for him. Uh, Boy, I felt for him. Uh, It's just bad. No fun. Nothing seemed to work correctly. (sighs) <sighs> um, would say there, I know that just looking at the pit stop uh, information, uh, post-race information from both events, I believe uh, both days were pretty tough in that regard. I think the issue here was one of the setup that they started off with, which they hoped obviously was going to be a good and effective one proved to not be. And with 75 minutes only, this is going to be a common theme with all the drivers coming in. Um, the replacement drivers coming in. Yeah. Um, we have an issue where started off way off with Seb in the 14 car did their best to recover some ground, but didn't get, as far as they would hoped and got into qualifying wasn't great got into the race really wasn't great and they threw a ton of stuff at it for the following race and uh, made a 
some progress, learned some things, but really none of them had to do with going faster or being competitive. So a really tough opening weekend where they got off on the wrong foot, didn't have time to really find the right foot. And yeah, plus things on pit lane. Again, just looking at the comparison of how long uh, stops took, that did not help things. And here we go, where it was just a very forgettable weekend. Would say that for Elio Castro Neves... We have a very similar situation. Bigger difference, though, for Elio being that just some of the car basics, as we you might have heard or read or listened to, uh, the brakes were a big issue in the single 75-minute practice session. So a variety of master cylinder sizes that can be used that deliver different braking effects. And for what Elio likes, that's not what they had. And so trying to do productive things, get to know the car, get to know the setup, uh, get to know, again, all these little things, including brake master cylinder size, get to know all these things, and then get to a place where you can really hone in on setup and go quickly. It never happened uh, to make everything good and right. And... Qualifying wasn't a blast. Race certainly wasn't a blast, but there was a definite belief that things would come better for the second round. And it seems like they learned some good things on the chassis side where it appeared to go pear-shaped was in race strategy. And I'm doing my best to remember, but I believe... Elio did went well. I don't know if he called for it or the team called for it, but a three stopper was indeed the uh, the decision that was taken. And oh yeah, Um, how's this? If you are going to try and do something spectacular, I get that mindset, but. A three-stopper when you didn't have a ton of pace demonstrated in practice and or the first race and first qualifying. It was just a big gamble, and it a 1,000% did not pay off. So I did genuinely feel for him. The only, I'm trying to look here, uh, the highest-placed driver who went for three stops was Ryan hunter Ray. And he finished 16th. Elio and his team, having gone for three, finished 21st. So if we want to do a little bit of a gradient, you could say, uh, yeah, uh, he was five places off the other driver. And Hunter Ray obviously being a champ and one of the lead drivers forever in the series. You could really say, all right, so... That was a proverbial fart in church in terms of strategy, and I've made those mistakes before myself, so please don't think I'm judging them and not judging myself. Uh, This just wasn't the right way to go. It was proven to be the wrong way to go pretty quickly. Uh, What Elio pitted on lap eight, uh, Hunter Ray pitted on lap nine. Um, 
you know, Elio was then in on lap 31. Hunter Ray was on lap 32. So again, these guys kind of matched one another. And the fact that Elio was only five spots behind, I would say that's really impressive. Uh, the fact that the top 15 on Saturday all went for two stops, just tell you that uh, that was clearly the way to go. So while we're looking at a couple of race results for Elio that are not numerically great or happy, I would at least say that Sunday, which was a better representation, wasn't so bad. Again, let's just ignore the position that he finished in and rate him against uh, who he was going up against in that competition and only being five spots behind Ryan Hunter Ray. Uh, it's maybe not the worst thing. Um, and then for our man, Mr. Hinchcliffe, it seemed like a rougher weekend than I expected of the three. He's the one that I really thought was going to come in and things were going to be quick like a bunny. I'm not saying pushing Hunter Ray or Rossi or Herta out of the way. These guys have been in their cars, been in a groove, right? Not saying that was the expectation, but I thought he was going to be there, thereabouts, close-ish. Just really didn't seem to happen. Now, granted, I'm trying to look and see uh, here. Obviously, when Zach Veach was in the car, his best finish for the year started uh, the opening round, fourth place on an oval. But if you look at all the other races, and I'm mainly staring at the road and street courses, his best was a 14th. If we look at Hinch coming in cold-ish and new engineer that he's working with, blah, 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 uh, I still thought that there was going to be a little bit more to show. He finished 14th in the first race, so matched Zach's best. And taking what they learned, trying it again the next day, again, things didn't exactly go as well as they had hoped. He finished 13th. So technically, uh, he delivered, well, I shouldn't say technically, factually, he delivered the number 26 car's best finish of the year on a rotor street course. I just thought it was something where he might be running a little bit higher. General thoughts there on the Foyt front, kind of sort of what I expected on the Arrow McLaren SP side with Elio. Didn't really expect things to be that hard, but again, the practice just threw them for a loop right away, having to get the mechanical setup of the car to a place where Elio could drive it the way that he wanted. And, you know, it's really tough to recover when you lose uh, so much quality time there in a single practice session. I would think Hinch would be a little more of what we expect from Hinch at St. Petersburg. We don't know if Elio is going to be in the car for St. Pete. Uh, that information may or may not be forthcoming here uh, in the coming weeks, hopefully, because the race is in the coming weeks. I think he would be much sharper there. I mean, Seb, you know Seb can drive a race car. He is a past somewhat recent winner uh, at St. Petersburg. It's just going to be a question of what kind of setup do they have rolling off the trailer, and is that something that they can shape into 
a right and proper direction. So to come back to the primary question here to close, uh, I can't say whether the team feels Elio did enough to earn a job next year. Uh, He would be paid if that were the case. So when you say earn, that is genuine in his case. In Hinch's case, we know that some sponsorship could be required to make that happen. So, but in terms of just earning it in terms of effort and quality, I think we're going to see, I don't think that they have a negative opinion of Hinch. We know that when things are right, the guy is a rocket and a threat for victory. The guy has what? Seven IndyCar wins. Um, you know, that that's not a small number. <laughs> if you look through the majority of the field, that's more career wins than what? More than half of the field. I don't know what the exact percentage is, but, um, I mean, we can't, you kind of can't ignore the fact that although things have been a little bit rough for Hinch over the last year, as you mentioned, John, with the body issue, six wins, I should say, not seven, but, uh, six career wins. It's not a small number to ignore. Uh, if we were to look at who, uh, Graham Rahal, where is he at? Six wins. Okay. Um, that's certainly not bad company. Uh, Takuma Sato. Now granted two of these are any 500 wins. So I think those have special value, but six wins as well. So, you know, just saying, that I know Hinch takes a bit of a pounding from some folks for not being very good or whatever folks think that he is or isn't. I can tell you that looking at the active drivers in IndyCar right now, sure. Uh, Dixon has more, Newgarden has more. Herta does not, but, you know, the kid's not too far. I mean, he's got three wins in less than two years. We're I'm safe in saying he's going to be double digits here uh, within another two years. Power obviously has more uh, Pagano. I mean, granted, I mean, Simon's had a really good career. He's had 15 wins so far. Uh, could be more. But after that, you know, uh, we're looking at Rossi, of course, with seven. It, no, he's only been doing this for about half as long as Hinch. So still, I don't think we can discredit the fact that Hinch can deliver I just think that this past weekend might have been, I don't know what it was, but might have been just a little bit off uh, of what the ex- the internal expectations were, and certainly external expectations were for me. So, Earn, sure. Um, I, think he, uh, I think he would be a fine addition there. And more than fine addition and fine people and all that, we just know that the Andretti team needs some really positive things to happen financially so that they can have all the current cars that they have right now, that being five full-timers. So uh, let's get rolling here. Thanks for that laugh, John. Uh, you do have permission to go rock climbing, naked rock climbing. Um, I don't think it'd be ESP in the body issue, though. I think it'd be Sports Illustrated. All right, It's kind of got to be an older, kind of fallen... Uh, title so yeah uh rishi despond how are you my friend mp elio finished 20th and 21st in the harvest gp just a case of adjusting to the new team or something more 
What are the chances he gets a full-time seat now? Says best you and Mrs. Pruitt. Um, I wanted to take this one from Hrishi because, A, it mentioned where he finished in both races. Um, but the the adjusting to the team part is what I wanted to pick up here just to throw another little bullet point in. Let's not forget that he is working with a new race engineer for the first time. He is working with a team that has its own thoughts and beliefs on damper development, on chassis setup, on everything. He's learning new people, new working styles, new communication styles within the team. Hey, my seat, I want to do this little thing. At Penske, he would talk to this person. All the dominoes would fall. Now here, where does he go? probably goes to the wrong person once if not twice and kind of gets pointed around to where he should just little things like this which it doesn't affect where he chooses to step on the throttle or turn the steering wheel and dictate lap time but it is part of the mental complex here Hrishi that's why I wanted to use your question and thank you for it not making excuses not doing any of that just again trying to shine a little bit of a light on the process here. And for those of you that don't know it, it's a lot different for a guy like Pato Award, although he's brand new to the team to start the season, now knows everybody, everything, knows how to pull all the levers to make whatever happened happen, knows how people interact with one another, who to joke with, who to be serious with what expectations are in place at the meetings, how folks communicate with one another to get the best out of one another, how positives are expressed, how to express a negative without upsetting things. These are all the things that coming into the season, a driver at a new team will try and figure out during preseason testing, might extend into the first couple of races. But you get to a point to where the first day at school feeling I don't know about all of y'all, but for most of my time in grade school, junior high, high school, whatever, first day of school, first day at a new school, man, that was not a happy and settled thing. Uh, Nervous, anxious, hope they like me, I don't want to make anyone hate me, whatever, whatever, whatever. That's what this stuff is, even if you're 45-year-old Elio or whatever, 20-year-old Pato Ward, there's still that first day first day at new school new whatever school year feeling and it lasts (laughs) and for those of you who had that awkward oh man i hate the first day of school thing it never magically got better on day two right like it might have been a fraction of a percent better but it took a while if it ever happened for you to feel comfortable and settled it's the same thing here veterans or rookies that's the same thing. So just sharing that like that new school thing in your head where there's a lot of voices talking, don't do this, say this, don't say that, whatever, don't sit next to whomever, and blah, 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 blah. A lot of that stuff floats around in your head, even in a 45-year-old super veteran three-time Indy 500 winner, or Sebastian, or, 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 or. And it takes a little while for those voices to quiet down and become settled and knowing what to do and how to do it and how to speak with people and how to this, that, and the other. These are all things that 
you try and quiet and put away when it comes time to practice qualifying race. It doesn't always happen. And so I'm just saying this is, it's not excuses. It's just expressing the fact that I would be very surprised. As I just mentioned, if the three drivers we've discussed, Bourdais, Castro Neves and Hinch weren't faster, better and everything at St. Pete, assuming Elio will be there in the car just because it takes getting through this, getting settled. Hopefully, if he is going to be there, spending more time in Indy with the team post-race and just being in and around and immersed so that when he gets to the next event with the team, things are a little more calm. There's less stuff floating around in his head that's pulling him and distracting him, and he can get down to that very kind of quiet mental voice and focus just like he's been able to with Team Penske for 20-plus years because he went through that process in 2000. And by 2001, for sure, wasn't even a thing. Definitely something to consider. Uh, our pal, Carlos Villalobos, says, Dear MP, oh, that's so nice. If Penske is letting Elio go, who will take Rick Mears' job as an advisor? Carlos goes on to say, always thought it was going to be Elio replacing Rick and says, as usual, best you and your wife. I have never really thought of that before. Um, And I don't know if that just expresses the fact that I'm an idiot and should have because it's my job or it never seemed like a fit. Um, Gotta admit, Carlos, I don't know if I really consider Elio to be the right follow-up for a Rick Mears. A, he's Rick frickin' Mears, who is, right, one of the all, all-time all greats, champion in terms of season-long, four-time winner of the Indy 500, just, right, the man, plus Rick's demeanor, Rick's way of doing things, always had some sort of Yoda, Jedi, Spock, whatever kind of mystic way. That translates very well into the role that he's in of coaching, advising, the not only immediate respect, but just the way that he presents information in this kind of, wow, what what planet do you come from kind of way. I don't know if I'd put Elio in that category. And so that's not speaking ill of Elio. I think it's more saying there aren't many Rick Mears out there. And I know Elio has won 3D500s, won a bunch of races in his career, done all kinds of really great things. I don't know if he is received by fellow drivers as that same Rick Mears sage-like person. I don't know how many of the folks who've been coached by Rick know that he is a champion IndyCar driver as well as four-time Indy 500 winner. I'm guessing most of the reverie and respect is based off of his Indy 500 career, but Rick Mears was pretty dang good on a road course as well. His big accident at San Air that uh, crushed his feet certainly made that more challenging in the years that followed, but I think there might be just a different regard between the two that would make this a challenge. So you did say if Roger lets him go, Roger is letting him go. Uh, There's no attempt 
to keep him in IndyCar. There is no sports car program following uh, the final race here in November in IMSA. So I don't know what he does exactly. Tried to discuss that with him a little bit recently and didn't really want to go down that path. Uh, I think he does some real estate stuff, and I think there's some general business stuff that he does in terms of keeping the money going. But I don't know. I just don't know if that'd be a good fit. Let's go to Willfla29 off Reddit. Love the screen name. No idea what it is. Please tell me. Uh, we've got a couple here about schedule, ovals, and markets. So, Marshall, I know the answer to the oval question is get fans to show up, but the 2021 schedule is getting to the worrisome stage about the continued presence of ovals uh, all outside the Indy 500. Goes on to mention, do you think Penske, uh, the Penske folks, see this as a problem, and will we likely see a return of a few more in future seasons? Uh I'll throw in Daniel Summersgill's question as well because it fits here with yours. Uh, Daniel, hey, Daniel. Uh, well, uh, with Iowa and Richmond kicked off the 2021 IndyCar schedule, are we looking at a future with the Indy 500 being the only oval race? Uh, this is hashtag me personally. Could teams justify spending significant money on air development for only one oval per season? All right, so on the greater question of ovals, you might know, you might have read, Robin Miller wrote a piece today, just suggested him it'd be a good thing to put together, and that was on the reduction in ovals. Apologize if you know that some of you all know this, but uh, for those who don't, this was not an IndyCar decision, meaning, hey, we have a green light to go to Iowa, green light to go to Richmond. The finances behind both are also positive, and we're just deciding to cut them off the calendar. It's not the case. Uh, we have Iowa, owned by NASCAR, uh, ISC, International Speedway Corporation, which is their track-owning company. Uh, they are looking to turn off Iowa. And as you might have read in Robin's piece or might have heard, a uh, question from the Penske group of, all right, well, what, what would it take to buy it and take it over? Um, that wasn't the problematic part. The number to own it, don't think that is the showstopper. It's the, and there's a buttload of debt that comes with it. And in order to buy it, you have to take on that debt. And all of a sudden, the just normal purchase of the track turned into a, oh no, that, that kills the concept altogether. So a track that's been bleeding money that NASCAR owns that they would love to sell, but for now are just looking to turn off so it stops costing them money. That's why Iowa went away, not because IndyCar didn't want to go there. And back to the same question that we get from, or position that we get from some, well, Roger Penske is a billionaire. You know, whatever that amount of debt he can swallow. Again, you don't stay wealthy by just throwing away money because you can. So that's not him. The Richmond side, uh, one that, I don't fully grasp why that went sideways. I do know that it is NASCAR related. I just can't tell you whether it was the cost to do it, the sanction fee, the whatever, whatever. Uh, and what Roger shared with Robin, he's just not really in a place where he wants to spend a lot of money to prop up the series to go to places where 
the finances are not correct where whether they put on the event and believe that they can recoup a profit or just be paid a straight up sanction fee you know like a band being paid to come appear at whatever big arena uh if those things aren't possible uh realistic then we're not going to go there and it sucks but that's good business and i know that good business is the last thing that fans want to hear about it's not fun or sexy but in the interest of not hemorrhaging money as a series and having folks on your board say hey cute that you bought this IndyCar thing uh boy it sure is tanking our profits get rid of it so these two tracks going away we can say for sure aren't because IndyCar just decided to heck with ovals now do we think that we could add some more in the future I do I can't tell you which ones we know Kentucky has been pretty vocal in saying hey we'd love to have you back if they can figure out the finances, I would have to imagine that would take place. Another factor here that we really should consider, and it's just hashtag one Montoya. It is what it is. We're still stuck in this COVID thing. We don't know how long it is going to last. We assume that all of next year's races will be full of fans, no issues, no anything, we don't know that we there's nothing right now to prove that the problem is going away in a timely manner to make us think that when we wake up on january 1st that boom covid is no longer a word we're going to use because it magically went away uh i would say that interest in negotiating stuff with new tracks trying to come up with whatever um let me rephrase that obviously we have the uh the nashville race coming up we've got some interesting things going on this is a thing where promoters are putting in money guaranteeing it's going to happen something like going to a kentucky which fell off the old irl calendar because no one turned up i think in the absence of a kentucky saying we're going to throw tons of money at you which I haven't heard that happening. Uh, I think that folks are probably saying, let's get through 2021, see what this COVID thing is like. And if we get to a place where we can say, all right, it's kind of sort of gone. We believe that any future calendars that we set going to any new places, especially a place like a Kentucky that was not great financially. The last time any car was there, least we can entertain the idea of we can fill it up with as many fans as possible and that's not a built-in question or concern or limiter right from the outset so after kentucky i i don't know if any others come to mind immediately that aren't owned by nascar but this i'd love to go back to charlotte uh, it was really fun when i was there for a couple of irl races um not the one where there were fatalities of course but uh you know that's a venue that isn't owned by nascar and i think could be uh i believe that's correct i believe humpy wheeler owns that um maybe that's the route maybe humpy and company and seeing what speedway 
Motorsports or whatever the hell the name of his track owning businesses. Maybe they can come up with something. It just feels like with the issues NASCAR is dealing with, uh, they have crazy financial stuff to deal with. Uh, buying back ISC, taking that from being a publicly held company to private, oh, the amount of debt they have taken on is insane. So this is the underlying reason. Sorry, I didn't mention that at the beginning. didn't occur to me. Uh, this is really the underlying reason why NASCAR is being very harsh in saying, we're turning off this track, we're not sure about here, blah, blah, blah. Um, they cannot afford to lose another penny because they already have a zillion pennies worth of debt to deal with. So maybe dealing with NASCAR's track-owning rival could be the way to get more ovals onto future schedules. And who owns Kentucky? I have no idea uh, which side, but there you go. Uh, Daniel, your question about if we're only down to one, I know you said the Indy 500, but I'll just say it's never just going to be one. Um always be a couple but to your point of like hey if we're just really crazy reducing the amount of ovals is there a real justification to spend a ton on air development and whatnot for that super speedway package well the answer is yes and always yes because it's the biggest race of the year it's the most important race of the year even if it was the only oval of the year there'd still be a ton of money spent on aero improvement not just the body fit side but cfd wind tunnels just yes (laughs) all all important race so that's never going to change my friend uh i'm gonna go to one more schedule question that being from the fine institution of reddit uh and that would be tony chef 20 says the new schedule to me is very lackluster feel like IndyCar should be expanding into new markets, similar to what the new NASCAR schedule is doing. Instead, they have a shrinking amount of ovals. Could IndyCar maybe purchase an Iowa or Kentucky or a Chicagoland and invest in those tracks future? Or is this an ignorant thought? Not ignorant at all, at all. Just having explained that RP is at his limit of new things he's going to buy just doesn't make that so feasible. You mentioned the new markets part. Well, I don't disagree on the NASCAR thing, but would just say that it's going into new markets for them, but not new racing markets. And so going to Road America, it's awesome. They've been there with Xfinity for a while, but even if this is the first time NASCAR would have appeared there, uh wisconsin kettle moraine the freaking road america that's a giant motor racing institution so they're stepping into something with a built-in audience uh same well granted i wouldn't say giant audience but same thing with circuit of the americas um you know the crowd will be good i don't think it's going to be insane um but that's already a place that has a racing culture and there you go when I talk, when I think about new markets, I think of, hey, IndyCar is going to Baltimore. Uh, IndyCar is going to Nashville. If in the absence of ovals, uh, well, heck, if there are some ovals IndyCar could go to where it is truly a new-ish audience. And, you know, I would assume NASCAR or something similar might have been to some of those ovals, but just a thing where you go, hey, this isn't really a big pro racing 
location in the country, then I think that would be awesome because I think the bringing the big show to a place that's never had a big show of this type, I think that's critical to building new fans regionally. So if it's a road course, if it's a street course, street courses tend to be the uh, the easiest way to do it. That's where my brain tends to fall. Tony Chef 20. All right, last couple of questions here on the uh, above-the-line ones, and then we'll go into a little bit of overtime to grab some below. Ryan Terpstra says, So, last silly season, I believe that hashtag you personally said, the Air Force wanted to sponsor Connor on an American team with an American engine. Uh, I think it was more the team side than the engine. Uh, it says, The whispers about Connor reuniting with Andretti had me going, What? I think that's referencing the Honda side uh, on the topic of Connor. Who would have thought all of his best races this season would be for Carlin? Has he had any standout performances at ECR that you can recall? Uh, do recall. Yeah. A couple Ryan just also recall that whether it was the timing of a yellow or uh, something that got in the way, really producing that high quality finish on a road street course, was hindered got to admit it was a little strange this past weekend to see renus going so well while it seemed like connor at times struggled a little bit he had some not kind words for i believe both max chilton and santino ferrucci for putting him off at one point but yeah there was just it's a bit weird we haven't seen the Ed Carpenter racing team, super crisp, and holy cow, watch out. They're vying for pole on a road street course uh, this year that I can really think of. I think there was a fast six moment for Renus prior to this. Apologies if I'm misremembering. But, yeah, there just seemed to be a little bit of a gap between the two, and I don't know why. Granted, you never expect them to always be just running directly together. Usually one team is right on the pace or close to and the others maybe searching for something. Even if both cars are off, you usually have one that's better than the other. Uh, it's rare that both are just miserable. So, yeah, uh, I believe this Indy Road Course race in July was one where Connor did fairly well. And I apologize if I'm forgetting. But, yeah, uh, not sure why we had that difference so much, but... The sticking with an American team part, yeah, I definitely know that to be the case. Keep in mind that he was with Andretti, was it, or Coin, with um, Air Force funding, if not both. So those teams both Honda-powered as well. So, yes, just more on the team side. I would also just say that between the two teams, talking about ovals, hard to argue that the Carlin team has not been stronger than the Carpenter gang on ovals so our that's the weirdest thing of all <laughs> this newish indycar team new to ovals when they came over in what 2015 i think in indy lights uh brand new stuff and yeah ed carpenter racing always one of our in for a, a shot at a pole or a win on the ovals it has been bizarre to see the Carlin team, when Connor drives for them, being pretty darn formidable while going up against his teammates, but not on those weekends, 
at ECR rarely ever to mount the same challenge. Uh, let's see. A practiced observer, another find Reddit screen name. Hi, Marshall. It is great news, especially with all uh, that has gone on this year for IndyCar to secure long-term commitments from both Chevy and Honda for future motors. Says it's not my place to tell teams what they should spend money on, but with the hard date for new engines plus kinetic energy recovery systems in 2023, wouldn't that be the lowest cost time to switch to a new chassis instead of reworking the stock uh, of existing chassis to fit the new engine package only to scrap them a few years later? Says maybe teams can sell their current chassis to Indy Lights to get some money back and Lights could maybe use the new head protection anyways. Well, all great questions. The plan for the new motor and whatnot is to bolt directly onto the existing chassis. So in the regulations for these new slightly larger motors come 2023 now, the bolt pattern is by regulation the same as the current motors. So you can and will be able to slide those motors right on to the same studs and throw some nuts onto those studs and tighten them down and torque them and have the motor just go boop, yay, everything good. Where we start to get new is in the bell housing area. I don't know, and maybe this has been published and I've forgotten it, but uh, I don't know if there's going to be a spec bell housing which is the bridge between the engine and the transmission. It carries the transmission. Uh, transmission bolts on to the back of the bell housing. Bell housing then bolts onto the back of the engine inside the bell housing, which is for the most part, just a big open area. Uh, you have the clutch that fits in there. And with this new package, the mechanical portion of the curves, the thing that under braking is going to regenerate um, or be spun up and use that to create electricity. Um, also, I believe there's a question in here, another Kurz question coming somewhere in this episode. I'll try to get to that as well about what do we do when we're on the ovals. Um, this is where the new stuff that helps make the electricity sits as well. Will that part be new? I don't know. Uh, I would assume, if not guarantee... Pretty much there's going to be a new transmission that comes with this engine package, noting that the power output is going to be significantly higher than the what the current transmission deals with. So I don't know all the details of what they're thinking because I don't even know if they have all the details of what they're thinking in place. But is it possible to mandate the suspension pickup points to be the same as they are now? and allow teams to carry over that suspension and all that possibly. But I think as I mentioned on the show months back, and also I think wrote as well, we're talking about needing new braking package to deal with the extra speed and forces and to manage them appropriately. We will very likely need new drive shafts. That since we are going from 700, 750 to 900 plus to 1,000 at some point, um, I think just about everything that bolts to the back of the tub is going to be brand new come 2023 because we're going to have to fit stuff into a bell housing that probably wouldn't fit this current one. Again, who knows? 
uh, what the spec, the design spec has been, but very likely a new bell housing would say you're pretty much going to have to have a new transmission to deal with this power, maybe add an extra gear, a seventh gear. IMSA did that, by the way, with their upcoming move to uh, hybrid powertrains. New drive shaft to deal with that torque and stuff and possibly new suspension, uprights, uh, wheel bearings, brakes. Just, you know, we're going faster. We're going, yeah, more to accelerate, more to slow down. There's probably going to be a need for some beefier stuff to deal with all this. So would say that this is the big thing I think we're going to see happen. I don't know if there's going to be a big change in terms of cooling. I don't know if they're going to have to go to bigger radiators. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Uh, there's going to need to be the placement of a battery. So in IMSA, with what's coming there, it's going to sit in the passenger seat in the prototypes. Uh, we don't have passenger seats here, so I'm not totally sure where that's meant to go. But that's going to be the big one of the big questions for them to solve. And so coming to your overarching question Can they go racing without going to an all-new chassis? Yes. Do I think teams are going to be stretched financially with the new motors and the purchase and or lease of the Curve system? And we expect the engine lease prices to go up plus the Curve side. I don't know if that's going to be rolled into the lease price or not, but this is going to be more expensive for teams for sure. Although I expect a lot of things to need to be new with this car. I don't think, dear, a practiced observer, that they will have the money to also do a new car. I know that if the economy was raging and all was good and teams were flush with cash and sponsorship, it indeed would be quadruple optimal for 2023 to be the brand new everything. I just, at this moment in time, can't foresee that happening because of the financial concerns all right friends we're going to move into overtime if that's all you wanted to grab that's all you wanted to listen to well thank you for listening we'll say thank you for all the great questions that were sent in definitely to the justice brothers and torontomotorsports.com also bell racing helmets usa and the mighty fine people at torontomotorsports.com and if you want to keep listening well i'm going to keep going for a little bit longer and get to as many overtime questions as I can. Sean Lee, I'm going to start with you, piggybacking here on a practiced observer's question. You are inquiring about Kurs on ovals, and wanting. you're saying, look, I understand the way that Kurs normally works. Charge is under braking. That energy is then stored in a battery and deployed, almost in a push-to-pass type thing. That's exactly what IndyCar is looking to do but then says, how would it work on an oval, assuming there's still ovals in the future? Um, yeah, since we really don't have significant breaking on ovals, this is the question that we are w- awaiting an answer from IndyCar. Granted, they haven't answered what they're going to do for their curves altogether, but again, we assume IMSA announced that they're doing they're using Bosch for their the mechanical portion of curves, the piece that is sitting in the excuse me in the bell housing that i mentioned uh they're using williams as in the williams formula one team williams advanced engineering they've been doing batteries for a long long time uh they're going to use them for the battery part which is great 
Would I be surprised if IndyCar announced that they were using Bosch and also Williams? Not at all. Um, but your question of, but hey, what about ovals? Well, this is where there's a couple different known solutions. Uh, there's heat using exhaust heat to spin up mechanical device and have that be the thing that is creating electricity. Um, there's also one, uh, one that I know of that attaches directly to a turbocharger, could potentially be two turbochargers, that spins, that is connected to uh, the the turbine shaft itself. And it does take away, right? Uh, it's some mechanical drag that slows down the turbos and wouldn't necessarily be super optimal, but if everyone's having to deal with it on an oval, then no one's uniquely disadvantaged. And it just spin, it spins just like that. Uh, it spins, and the spinny part is what generates the uh, helps to generate the electricity, which is then stored. So it's a couple options there. There might be others I don't know about, but they are directly related to hey, we're not really breaking on ovals. So how do we charge this? Aha! Here's some other systems within the vehicle that we can siphon off of to make that kinetic energy recovery system functional on ovals. So, I mean, the other the other part, which I don't think they're going to go in this direction, is to not do that on ovals. Coming back to the question we had just a moment ago about what if we only go down to uh, one oval, if it's just the 500 or similar, is there a reason for aerodynamic expenditures? Yeah, Indy 500 is what it's all about. So if manufacturers are coming into this hybrid formula, I can't imagine there'd be a way where the Indy 500 would take place without that hybrid thing being a huge selling point and the biggest promotional point of the year. So don't know what they're going to do, but they got to do it. Uh, you also mentioned how are engine sizes picked? Uh, why is the next one going to be 2.4 liters and not 2.5? This is talking to the engine manufacturers and saying, hey, uh, what displacement do you want to use? And both coming back with ideas. And it usually falls along the line of a mutually agreed, hey, there's my wife texting me. I better hurry up here. Um, (laughs) A mutually agreed upon displacement that best matches, represents, or whatever you want to call it, uh, things that they sell. So I think think chevrolet has had uh what a number of 2.4 liter motors turbo i think as well and i'm not totally recalling on the honda side but i think that kind of falls in line as well maybe it's an exact number i believe they have two some two liter turbos but i think that 2.4 number is just something that both agreed was numerically positive and they could both work with it even if maybe it didn't fit uh one or the other perfectly so yeah there's that i'm also waiting for ed joris to send me a a direct message here saying no idiot honda has 2.4 liter turbos and it's an exact fit for both so could very well be let's see gonna jump through a few more here luke entrop hey luke i don't know if i've read a question yours before if not thanks for sending it in uh, what is happening with the Laguna Seca ownership group? Are we going to be able to keep this track? I've seen a report of the local government potentially turning their property into housing. How long do you think it stays on the schedule? Uh, I don't know the report you mentioned. 
I know that there's always the question of, are they just going to turn this into new condominiums and whatnot? If that's a new report and it's something that is, there's serious whatever behind it, I'll try and find it. I'll just share this, Luke. The person that wields the most power in controlling Laguna Seca's fate is a part of the city council. It's a permanent, or I shouldn't say permanent, but a a long-time, full-time employee. And this person has staked his reputation on being able to turn Laguna Seca into a positive cash flow place, repair whatever negative reputation it might have because of all the management conflicts and whatnot, turn it around, modernize it, and make it profitable for the county. And this is the person who the entire board of supervisors fell in line with and voted for the new track manager because he said to, because he recommended it. So this is the guy who sways Monterey County's board of supervisors. This person, Dwayne Woods, he has single-handedly taken the reins, chosen the new track manager, uh, set up all the business practices, blown people out, brought people in. He's claimed 100% ownership of this. Maybe he hasn't, but I'm just trying to make sure that he does because this is really, he has said everything else before me, whatever, insufficient, bad, go. I know the way, the truth, the light. I'm smarter than everybody. I'm everything than everybody. Um, Here we go. So this guy, wielding immense power in the county level, has created this new management group and has his fingers directly involved in its success. So with all that said, I can't foresee how a local report that local government might turn into housing would be valid because he's pulling the strings on local government. And this experiment of his is not yet a year old, and it's been besieged by COVID-19. So they just held their first, this new management team, A&D Nariji Group, LLC. uh, They just held their very first major event, that being the Ferrari Challenge uh, showdown towards the end of September. So just can't see it. So I do believe we're going to be okay for a couple of years, but if this fails and Dwayne Wood's vision and efforts and everything fails, then could I see this being a possibility? Who knows? And there's Rosie meowing again. Uh, Lake Effect Racing, do you think consideration will be put into extending the 2022 schedule into October? No, I do not. Uh, Jeremy Zucker, hey, Marshall, best to you and your wife. Thank you. Kind of a fun one. If all three cars are uh, if all three are in the same cars for a full season next year, out of the three veterans uh, that came back, uh, get to go forward next year. Sorry, brothers, written just a little. My brain's not processing it well. Um, if all three, if Bordet, Castroneves, and Hinch get to come back full season next year, who do you see having the best season? Uh, I know this is similar to one from a little bit earlier, or definitely way earlier in the show. Also mentioned a win for the French fry and the 14 car be amazing for everyone involved. I would say that if we look at the year long 
efforts and results put forth by the Aero McLaren SP team, uh, that would be a place where any quality driver would think, based on 2020, that they would be in the most advantageous position. We know that Colton Herta now is sitting third in the standings. Pato Ward has been bumped back to fifth. But we can say that other than Colton being good for the first half of the year and then certainly a lot better in race winning once the team found its mojo for the second half of the season, you just have to say overall the Andretti team's looking really strong right now, but they were nowhere for the first half of the year. The Aero McLaren SP team's been pretty darn close to up front for most of the year. Uh, so it'd be between Castroneves and Hinch. I think Castroneves might win out in that conversation. I really don't think it'd be our friend the French Fry. I think that there's so much work to be done there that it would take quite a while uh, to get there. So I know you mentioned if all three are in the same cars, and I don't know if there's an assumption that they'd all be equally as good. I don't know. But if I just take the state of where they're at right now, um, it'd be between Elio and Hinch and... I would uh, probably lean towards the Air McLaren SP side than anything. Uh, let's see. Where else do we go here quickly? Lance Snyder, palate cleanser, is the whole reason for reduced ovals for next year uh, due to Colton Hurd and Connor Daly stealing the wheels off of those events, leaving the events on blocks gleefully. I think you're on to something, brother. We, we need to blame them for sure. Um, Matthew Featherman is in a prior podcast you mentioned that indycar may take an incremental approach to debuting a new chassis is there any detail on how that would occur and if not how do you envision that occurring if they go that route yeah that was something that jay fry mentioned they were thinking about doing wrote about that matthew got into that a little bit here just a moment ago about hey going to this hybrid power plant you're going to need everything kind of connected to the power side to be new and uprated and and whatnot I think that's just going to be the way that they go and bolt that onto the DW12. I'll be super surprised if there's anything other than that. And then maybe a new tub in 2024 soon, soon for sure. So I still don't love the idea of incremental. I just, again, know that money is such a big issue that it's really hard to plan beyond anything else. Uh, let's see, Richard K. Buckle. Hey, Richard, again, I don't know if I've read a question from you. If not, thanks for sending it in. Says, Colton Herta, aggressive? Surely not. And no, not something he inherited from his mother. Was that Paul Tracy suggesting it or Townsend Bell? I don't remember. Uh, he's, yes, behind the wheel, he is a little ball of controlled fury. And... Uh, not like red face fury, but like dead eyed assassin fury. And it's really, yeah, it's really impressive. I think we discount the fact that his old man could certainly get his blood up as well. So yeah, uh, that's where I might put that. Uh, let's see. I'm trying to read these as quickly as I can, by the way, cause Mrs. Pruitt wants to eat and she's not too happy with me. Uh, Colin Young hugs to Chabrell. Well, hey man, thanks. Do long, smoky, anatory burnouts, leaving the pits, hurt tire life throughout the stint. Says when the driver complains about the rear's losing grip, I think uh, should have taken better care. Uh, the first three seconds, you had them. Uh, he also asks, is first gear so tall that they have no choice? Uh, they certainly have a choice. Um, keep this in mind. 
unless we're talking about someone that just burns rubber all the way out for a crazy amount of time, which they a shouldn't do because it would hurt tire life and B you're probably going to exceed the speed limit and get penalized. The reason that gets done is to get the temperatures up and you might say, well, but doesn't that create a handling imbalance? If you roll out on new tires in a race, even practice but if you roll out and the rears are comparatively hot and the fronts are comparatively cold yeah but that's where you also see a lot of braking energy put into the front tires because that heat from the carbon brakes then soaks into the wheel which then helps increase heat in the front tires uh so yeah but just noting an obvious thing here these cars are decidedly rear heavy to rear heavy. And so forget kind of high, high speed downforce conversation, just mechanical grip. Um, these things, you don't really want the rear tires to be cold because it's going to go around on you very fast. And if the rear of the car is planted, you can manage that understeer while the front tires are colder on their way to coming up to temp. So this is actually a very good thing, and there's a reason everybody does it, Colin. But yeah, there's also a reason why you don't see folks just doing the five or six uh, pit space burnout length because, yeah, uh, you would shed probably more rubber than optimal, plus you'd get a speeding violation. Um, Let's see, Tim Gundlach. Hey, Tim. Uh, Marshall, what are your thoughts on Zach Veach? I think he has a ton of talent, just needs the right team chemistry. Would hate to see him fade out of IndyCar. Um, I'm with you. I love the kid. I think he has a lot of talent. I think chemistry-wise, things were good at the team. Uh, I don't believe he has any money to stay in IndyCar, so that's a problem. Do I think in a more nurturing environment, he would be better faster happier i do i really do there's some drivers where that's a big conduit to their finest performances there are some others who they just don't let any of that stuff soak in and i'm with you i i i'm with you and and i do agree and feel that in a different team zach's kinder nature might have been developed in a slightly i don't want to say better way but just might have been slightly better fit and he'd been with andretti forever uh coming up through the open wheel ranks so you know this is a family he'd been with i just think when things became the toughest he'd ever faced in racing this being the holy cow nasty level of competition in IndyCar, um, there could be some. There could be something to this. Developing him in a way that uh, maybe was a better fit for, or a, a more conductive fit for his inner nature. Um, how's this? I mean, I, I I'm trying to think of other teams where that would be a thing. Uh, Shank really comes to mind. Uh, probably number one comes to mind uh, of a place where like, hey, we're we're a little bit about the feels. So let's see what we can do there. Certainly wouldn't be Team Penske. Um, I think Rahal Letterman-Lanigan could be that way a little bit, but uh, budget-wise, I think that might be a real problem getting there. Maybe, you know, maybe 
Meyershank Racing uh, in a second part-time car. Maybe that's something Jack, Jack, good Lord, uh, Zach could find, maybe, hopefully. And I think he might find a, a place where uh, his little spirit, his his little heart would be uh, more directly connected to uh, the team around them because it's just a really super big heart team. All right, I'm going to get murdered if I don't wrap this up ASAP. I wish I could get to more of your questions. Um, I'm going to come back in part two and get to as many of those as I can. Let me find one that uh, will close the show for us. Uh, Do I go to Jamie Carmichael? Michael Mueller, you sent in, I think, something about this once or twice. So, Jamie, I apologize for uh, missing this here. It's a lot of words, by the way. Brother, you talk about braking. Um, Yeah, uh, drivers do modulate the brakes differently. uh, And also, if you're talking the race, uh, some are saving fuel, so some are not laying into the brakes super hard. Some not saving brakes are, are fuel or braking super late. So two of the big reasons why you'll see a disparity in colors. Uh, but the main question here we're going to close with Michael Mueller. says, Marshall, in a recent episode, you discuss the future of Japanese drivers in the series when Takuma Sato ends up retiring. I just wanted to put the name Yuki Sonoda on your radar. Thanks, Michael. He's a Honda-backed driver in Formula 2, currently third in the championship. As part of the announcement that Honda will be leaving F1, it was assumed he'd be in line for a seat at Red Bull's junior team, AlphaTauri. It's hard to see Red Bull bringing a Honda development driver in now, given the split, which slams the door in the young man's F1 hopes. Any Honda-powered IndyCar teams with a vacancy or need for budget uh, might be wise to inquire about his interest in IndyCar. Ah, I love this stuff, Michael, and... Again, my embarrassment, I'll admit to not spotting him uh, prior to your mention. So genuinely appreciate that. Just going to look at the uh, the entry list again and say where could. Well, Shank certainly comes to mind. I know he mentioned uh, to me that he, again, they're looking to do a second car next year, but more part-time, not necessarily full-time. Considering the growth, significant growth in strength and their relationship with Honda and HPD, that does jump out as maybe a place, uh, maybe a place we don't know. And I know we'll just play like he's uh, in need of a home next year. And where do we put him in IndyCar? That could be a thing at Shank. Maybe that becomes a full-time thing. Assuming that Honda's paying for it. Honda Japan is paying for it. At Chip Ganassi, could that be a thing? Uh, again, we assume that Rosenquist will be back. I'd say Erickson's a bit of a question mark. If the full funding is there, great. If not, uh, that would certainly be a premier team to consider. On the Andretti front, we know for sure that Honda has spent money to have Japanese drivers in that team, or at least driver. Um, Knowing about some of the questions about their funding for a couple of entries next year, that jumps out as a big possibility for sure. Uh, where do, where else do we go? Uh, Ray Hollett and Lanigan. I don't know of them. You know, uh, Bobby has always said, if we have proper funding for a third car, we'd love to run it. Uh, would we have two Japanese drivers in the same team? Maybe again, I don't know, but if we're talking about this, here's a kid with a ton of talent and now all of a sudden he really has nowhere to go and Honda Japan wants to spend $6 million for him to have in the start of an IndyCar career. 
I think there might actually be a bunch of options. Knowing the finances with a couple of the teams that I mentioned, RLL in particular, love to go to three if someone's paying. Andretti definitely looks like they could use one or two cars to be filled financially, so this would be a great fit there. And again, maybe the shank angle, but I'd say those other two might be uh, the first destinations for them to consider. All right, I'm going to go get dinner ready. Appreciate all of you and all the questions you've sent in. We have more to get into here in a couple days as soon as I can. Really do appreciate you and love doing this. I am Marshall Pruitt. This is the podcast I named after myself. This is our Weekend IndyCar Listener Q&A Part 1 brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets USA.